Good evening from New Delhi, India. Uh, good morning, good afternoon to all of you from around the world. Uh, we'd like you to thank you tremendously for joining this virtual event live today. Um, and, and also thank you to those of you who will be watching this recording after the event. Um, I'd like to um, let you know that to participate in the Q&A session that follows the presentation, and we'll probably have a half an hour of that, uh, about half an hour of that, please submit your questions on ifpi.org, on our Facebook uh, page, our LinkedIn page, on YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIFP on Twitter. Uh, in addition, for those friends from the media who are joining us today, if you have any specific questions or queries, please feel free to contact the media team. Uh, their contact details are available at ifpi.org. So why are we here today? Uh, COVID-19 will affect nutrition outcomes in populations through really different pathways. Around the world, we've been seeing and reading a lot about the economic consequences, uh, job and losses and poverty, and we know that these will affect the security and nutrition of populations uh, in many different countries. Uh, today, however, we'll explore specifically the role of uh, health systems and of food systems. Our speakers today bring global as well as global local perspectives. And I'd like to share, uh, take just a minute to share with you how the panel um, and, the, and the event today will unfold. Um, after opening remarks by Jos Swinnan, IFPRI's Director General, uh, to frame the uh, event for us, uh, we will then have Marie Rowell, who is the Director of IFPRI's Poverty Nutrition Division, share her, her perspectives on what we can anticipate on the ways in which uh, COVID-19 would affect nutrition around the world, particularly focusing on the pathways that go through food and health system transformations and interruption. Uh, following her, Robert Black, uh, Bob Black, as many of us know, us, know him, uh, from Johns Hopkins University will speak um, about the, the potential impacts of disrupted delivery of health and nutrition interventions, particularly those delivered through health systems uh, and the impacts of those on nutrition and mortality. Bob will be followed by Asmi Abu, who is a research fellow in FPRI's nutrition division and is based in our uh, South Asia office. Rasmi will speak uh, really from a bit more of a positive note about the, the kinds of policy and program adaptations we're already seeing on the ground in big countries like India and the attempts that are underway to preserve children's nutrition interventions. Um, and, and our final panelist will be Professor uh, Corinne Fox from the City University of London. Uh, she's a systems expert and will speak to concerns that relate uh, specifically to the food system. Um, we will hear closing remarks from John McDermott, who is the director of the CGIAR research program on agriculture, nutrition, and health. And then, viewers, it's your turn. We'll move into a Q&A session um, where we hope to dig into many of the questions that we know uh, you will have for us. Uh, so let me hand over now to uh, Yo Swinnan. Yo, over to you. Thank you very much, Purnima. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm very pleased to say a few words at the beginning of this uh, panel. Nutrition and healthy diets are really important themes for the globe, uh, for the welfare of people around the world. And so they are also very important elements of IFPRI activities, IFPRI research. And so this is an important panel for all of us. I really look forward to the speakers. Uh, Maria and our colleagues have put together a very eminent panel as Purnima already introduced to you. And so not only are we have four uh, basically <clears throat> renowned experts in this field, but also Purnima herself, who is moderating today as an expert in the field. 
and John McDermott, the director of A4NH, who will close the panel, knows um, very much about the relationship between nutrition and health. So I'm really kind of out of my league here introducing this panel, and therefore I'm not going to use up much time here, but I'm actually going to give the minutes that are left to our speakers. So I look forward to uh, learning about what we know about the impact of COVID on nutrition and healthy diets, but also about what are the policy responses we do best now. And of course, in the medium term, when we look forward, what are the best things we can do trying to rebuild our food systems for the future? Thank you very much. And back to you, Pauline. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Yo. We just keep gaining time through this event. So I'm uh, really pleased to invite uh, Marie Ruel, uh, Director of the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division, um, who will share with us her insights on, on these two big uh, systems and what we can anticipate. Over to you, Marie. Thank you. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today to talk about the impacts on nutrition. As many have noted, the COVID-19 pandemic and related economic crisis and food system disturbances have all of the makings of a perfect storm for nutrition. We expect impacts on all forms of nutrition from from child wasting to stunting to micronutrient deficiencies and to overweight and obesity in some contexts. Um, this is likely to put us seriously off uh, on, on, on our recent progress in improving nutrition. We are really concerned about going backwards and losing track of our, our very important progress. The next slide, please. The reason why this is happening is that the, the current crisis is affecting all of the systems that we are relying on for improving nutrition. We rely, of course, on the health system. The health system provides or delivers many of our essential nutrition actions. Uh, we rely on social protection systems that tackle poverty and are important for improving nutrition. And we also, of course, rely on the food system, which provides food, and on water and sanitation, which helps us protect in, from infectious diseases. So all of the systems are important. I will focus on three of them. I will not talk about water and sanitation just because of lack of time. Next slide, please. So in terms of the health systems, we all know by now that the disruptions are tremendous. There is a reallocation of staff uh, in all of the countries to the issues related to the virus. And that also has led to uh, the, the containing um, measures that have been taken by the government to reduce mobility and, and to prevent gathering. And so all of those factors have resulted in tremendous drops in coverage, at least for a short period of time and for some for more extended periods of time, it drops in the coverage of our essential nutrition actions. So this includes antenatal care, childbirth, neonatal care, immunization, micronutrient supplementation, nutri nutrition counseling, all of those are affected as well as the intervention to prevent and treat infectious and parasitic diseases, malaria, for example, a main killer for, child, for children, as well as severe acute malnutrition. 
In addition to that, we have uh, informal evidence of stockouts of essential drugs and micronutrient supplements. Uh, and those, again, are very important. Uh, iron folate, multiple micronutrients, vitamin A supplements, all of those, including also the ready-to-use therapeutic foods that are necessary for severe acute, for the treatment of severe acute malnutrition. We also have important drops in demand for services. This is what we're hearing from the countries, that people are just scared to go to the health centers and they avoid going even for childbirth. So we have an increase in, in births uh, taking place at home, which we know has severe implications potentially for the mother and the child. Next slide, please. <clears throat> the economic crisis. Uh, many of you, uh, if you attend IFPRI seminars, might have seen the, um, the uh, modeling results from uh, David Laborde's team, uh, which show that the, the economic downturn is likely to lead to 140 million, 48 million additional poor, an increase in 20% <coughs> in 2020. And this is also likely to continue beyond this year. Um, the other aspect that they have uh, documented is the fact that it also is uh, likely to reduce the consumption of nutrient-rich foods. You see on the right panel that the red bars are for drops in fruit and vegetable consumption and, and uh, drops in meat consumption as well as dairy. And you see the yellow bars are increases in consumption of, of crops, of, of staple crops and, and uh, non-perishable foods. Um, so this is to be expected because in times of economic crises, we expect people to try to, to improve their, to try to maintain their intake of calories and they, they go for cheap sources of calories and uh, at the expense of more expensive nutrient-rich foods. The next slide, please. Um, other uh, information, very, very little so far, real information from the field that comes from some of the phone surveys that have been conducted. The first one is in April, um, the Bangladesh Institute for Governance and Development reported uh, a few data uh, on, on how people are reacting to the, to the economic crisis or are suffering from the economic crisis. They report a 70% drop in income, which is larger in urban slums compared to rural areas, for example, uh, and about 25% drop in food expenditure at the time in April already, 28% uh, in urban slums, slightly higher, and, in, and a dangerous increase in coping strategies such as reducing the number of meals per day and reducing food consumption altogether. Um, we also have some uh, early evidence also from, food, from phone surveys from uh, our team, uh, IFPRI team in Ethiopia, that showed disruptions in food supply chains um, and, and, and affecting both demand and supply or resulting from both demand and supply. So in Addis, for example, uh, the interviewees reported, 50% of them reported uh, avoiding dairy, meat, and poultry, and 22% report um, limiting vegetables. This is purely due to perceptions, misinformation. People believe that animal source foods and, and fresh vegetables 
are contaminated and are a risk of, of, uh, of, um, of acquiring the virus. Um, and so they avoid these foods. Um, there's also uh, information about the vegetable value chain in Ethiopia that is affected both, again, on, in terms of, of reduced demand from individuals who are scared of contamination, but also from the restaurants that are closed. And there are several um, supply side uh, limitations, scarce labor, inputs, uh, shortages, high prices, and, and, and waste in, in, the, in these kinds of products. Um, so we have evidence of reduced consumption of nutritious food, and we have uh, evidence, very preliminary evidence of deterioration of diet quality. And so we are very concerned about impacts on micronutrients. The next slide, please. In terms of social protection systems, social protection programs exist in, in many, many countries. And Ugo Gentilini from the World Bank has been tracking what has happened to these programs during uh, the crisis. And we have 170 countries that have planned, introduced, or adapted social protection programs, mostly cash and in-kind transfers. Um, we also know that uh, those are very unlikely to be able to meet all of the demand, which is very large and will continue to increase probably. School feeding programs are part of social protection systems, and we have seen with the school closures that up to 370 million children are without school meals. Uh, 45 countries have implemented take-home school meals. 10 countries have been in, implemented cash-based transfers and 15 have other various modalities. Uh, but here the concern is again about the quality of meals. What can be delivered safely uh, in a take-home school meal? And we are concerned that uh, nutrient-rich foods will be sparse and, and that this will affect diversity and the micronutrient content of those meals. And again, a concern for micronutrient malnutrition. The next slide, please. In conclusion, I wanted to put up a series of recommendations, which are really, I would call them big buckets of recommendations uh, targeted to all of those systems that we rely on. So uh, first, of course, keep the agro-food systems functioning. We've heard that, we hear that consistently from economists, we need to keep the food systems functioning, including uh, the informal sector. We need to help protect this, the informal sector, provide them water and sanitation and, and, and education on how to uh, do their trade in, in safer ways, facilitate food systems innovations. Um, another area is to support the local production, uh, especially of fruit and vegetables and eggs, even homestead food production where possible so that we improve access to those nutrient-rich foods. Find innovative ways to simulate demand for nutrient-rich foods. Make sure we address misinformation. I was very, very surprised to see all of this misinformation about um, animal source foods and, and vegetables in Ethiopia. Uh, use new techniques and, 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 uh, and tools to reach people with messaging, with phone messaging and, and other radio, etc. Use social safety net, safety net programs to improve diet quality, not just quantity. Invest in water and sanitation. I have not, as I said, mentioned much about this sector, but uh, we know that water and sanitation are incredibly important for, uh, the, for stopping the, the um, 
transmission of this disease. And uh, we also know that in low and middle income countries, the situation in water and sanitation in urban areas are, are tremendously bad. And so that will have a lot of consequences if we don't address it. And finally, we need to address vulnerabilities and inequalities. This, the, the crisis is exacerbating all of the inequalities in age, gender, uh, for refugees, for poor, non-educated people. And if we do not address these inequities, the, the whole crisis will be even worse for the vulnerable groups. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marie. That was a fantastic uh, opening. Uh, let me now hand over to uh, Bob Black from Johns Hopkins. Uh, Bob, we're really looking forward to hearing uh, work that you, you will be speaking about. So health systems, what can we do? Thanks, Pranima. If we could have the slides, please. What I'm going to talk about is the possible indirect effects of the pandemic and the response to the pandemic on child mortality in low and middle income countries. Next, please. The slide, please. Um, I think the situation in regard to child mortality is a bit unusual in that with this pandemic, the mortality rates from the infection appear to be quite low. In fact, almost zero in the, in the countries that have been affected so far. Uh, however, children in these settings will be disproportionately affected by the disruption of routine health services. This, as you know, the response is, is quite uh, dramatic in many countries. As Marie said, the shutdown of uh, services and the reluctance to use services and perhaps in some cases, the overwhelming of uh, health services by, by the pandemic, by the infections, will, um, will lead to uh, difficulties with um, children receiving services, as well as all of the uh, broader economic effects or effects on the health system. Um, there are concerns not only about avoiding food, but certainly avoiding the health, health services, health system, because uh, people think, and it is true, that, that there are many people infected with the coronavirus there and they could be exposed. I'd also say for children, there is a, a particular vulnerability in that um, the, the preventive and, and treatment interventions for children are very time sensitive. If you don't receive the measles vaccine on time, it's very likely the child will, will um, develop measles and have a, a risk of mortality. Uh, most of the causes of death in, in children are uh, infectious diseases in these uh, low income settings. And, and those uh, infectious diseases often, if they're severe, need immediate treatment. So the uh, disruption of services for children uh, can be uh, very uh, concerning in regard to their ability to receive these interventions to prevent or treat the illnesses. And then uh, in addition to the effects on the health system, as uh, Marie said, the, the increases in food insecurity or changes in, uh, in, uh, in utilization of foods available can increase malnutrition and place additional demands on the health system. Uh, next slide, please. And we'll talk specifically about, about wasting uh, in that regard. Uh, this is a framework that we've used uh, for the uh, indirect effects of the pandemic on uh, health systems and, and on wasting. 
certainly the uh, disruption due to the pandemic, and, and in this case, particularly the disruption due to the attempt to control, to respond uh, uh, to the pandemic by reducing transmission and shutting down services is, uh, the, the would, would include the effects on the availability of health workers, the availability of supplies that lead to reduced provision of health services. In addition, the demand for health services may decrease or access may decrease. As you know, transportation has also been very disrupted by um, the shutdown of, of uh, countries, and that can decrease the utilization of health services. So we, we talk about the reduced coverage of health interventions, that is the combination of all of these, these different aspects, coverage being the, um, the receipt of an intervention, preventive or, or therapeutic, at the, at the, for the child at the time that it is needed. And, but in addition, we're looking at, at the in, possible increased prevalence of wasting. Why particularly look at wasting in this setting? Well, for one, uh, wasting can, um, it can be exacerbated or the, the prevalence of wasting can be increased in a, in a rather short time frame. And we do have some new evidence on that of how that has happened with previous uh, shocks to countries. Um, and children who are wasted have a high risk of mortality from the common infectious diseases that are seen in these settings. So there is a synergy between wasting and uh, infectious disease that can be particularly deadly. So we, we have looked at, at those aspects in regard to the potential increase in maternal and child mortality. I'll speak here just of the child mortality part. Next slide, please. Um, my colleagues at Johns Hopkins, um, faculty members uh, of the team that works on something called the Live Save tool have done some um, estimates of the indirect effects of the pandemic on child mortality. I'm just drawing on a, a bit of this information that was published in the Lancet Global Health Journal um, just a few weeks ago. Um, they, they developed uh, some hypothetical scenarios for um, how the, the pandemic could affect countries. This is low and middle income countries, 118 of them, in fact. And uh, they said various scenarios of um, coverage decreases of about 15%, about 25%, and about 50%. Uh, I say about because the, the specific coverage decrease that was hypothesized varied by intervention, depending on whether it was thought to be uh, affected by supply issues or demand issues or, um, or health service issues more broadly. So, uh, but there are approximate figures here. Um, wasting prevalence was also uh, said to increase potentially 10%, 20%, or 50%. And this was done for various time periods. The LifeSave tool is a model that, that uh, examines the potential uh, impact of a change in interventions, more than 70 of them for reproductive, maternal, newborn, and child health, and also potential change in risk factors such as wasting. The estimates of this uh, came out to be, just as, as one example, in six months, the possible additional deaths for children 
would be would range from a quarter million to 1.2 million. This would be uh, either 10% uh, or up to a 45% relative increase in deaths in these countries. Now, I would say how, how realistic are these scenarios? Um, we, we have recently received information from UNICEF that is asking countries and their representatives in countries what is happening. They're actually hearing reports of coverage decreases for interventions across the board of 75% or even up to 100% with complete shutdown of health systems. Now, how long that will go on is, is unknown, but hopefully uh, not, not certainly at that um, drastic level of reduction for, for very long. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is from the paper that um, that shows the uh, additional deaths per month of intervention. And this is the mid-range scenario. Um, and the, uh, the highest increase in, in deaths is projected to come from the increase in the wasting prevalence. And then, of course, after that, reduction in treatment from neonatal infections, uh, pneumonia, and, and diarrhea. Uh, and of course, many other uh, Interventions will also have, have uh, some effect if they are reduced, such as vitamin A or some of the others. So this is all of the interventions for, uh, for child health and not just the nutrition ones. Uh, next slide, please. About 20% of, uh, of that attribution would be due to the uh, effect of increased wasting. So now we have um, launched into a, a much expanded effort to to do additional modeling of the indirect effects of the pandemic on maternal and child mortality. Um, this is collaboration with uh, IFPRI and our group at Johns Hopkins, and it brings together modeling efforts that, that uh, examine the effects on income and food systems, the effects on nutritional status, and the effects on health systems, and uh, the resulting mortality. The effects of the pandemic um, on GNI are are calculated using a, a model, uh, Neuragradap, by uh, uh, John, uh, by uh, David Laborde at uh, IFPRI. And the relationship between GNI and the prevalence of wasting, stunting, and dietary diversity is being uh, examined using uh, DHS data by Derek uh, Hetty at IFPRI. And then we at Johns Hopkins are are using the, these as inputs into the uh, live save tool to consider how these uh, will reduce the uh, treatment of wasting, which we did not look at in the previous modeling, and other in the reduction of uh, the coverage of other nutrition interventions. And, and the result of this would be what would we expect in regard to uh, changes, increases in maternal and child mortality and other outcomes, uh, other nutrition related outcomes. And beyond that, as far as this, this broader collaboration, we want to consider priority nutritional interventions and their costs in phases of the pandemic from an urgent mitigation phase to recovery and even beyond to expand on nutrition services to, uh, to uh, prevent mortality. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bob. Very, very sobering uh, modeling um, results there. Really, truly very sobering. Uh, I think it's absolutely incumbent on countries around the world to make sure that 
these services can can adapt and and sort of come into place quickly even as the pandemic rolls through um, and so you know with um, connecting from where where you ended to uh, what's uh, to get a view of what's actually happening in very large country that carries a very large burden of uh, both undernutrition and child mortality. I'm pleased to invite Rasmi Avala to join us. Rasmi is a researcher and has been working in collaboration with India to, to put together some of what we hear about today. So over to you. Thank you, Purnima. Hello, everyone. Greetings from India. Uh, the work I'm presenting on, uh, I'm presenting this on behalf of a team in Delhi. Uh, there are uh, a set of health and nutrition interventions that are globally identified to be important to ensure uh, good maternal and child health outcomes in the first thousand days. And these interventions include antenatal care, food and micronutrient supplementation, immunization, growth monitoring, care for uh, sick and malnourished children, and health and nutrition education. India has a robust policy framework and it includes uh, nearly all of these interventions. Since COVID struck, the, the delivery of these interventions have been a bit of flux as we heard from our earlier speakers. Next, please. Next slide, please. So to, before I get into what is happening in COVID, uh, let's take a step back into pre-COVID India. Uh, as Punima mentioned, in, uh, globally, India contributes to a third of stunting burden. Between 2006 and 2016, uh, stunting has there has been reduction in stunting from 48 to 38%. Uh, State-level analysis uh, that we did indicates that uh, changes in coverage of the key health and nutrition interventions contributed between 11 to 25% of change in stunting. This highlights the importance of uh, these interventions. In India, these interventions are delivered through two major national programs, the Integrated Child Development Services and the National Health Mission. And primarily, these are delivered through uh, health centers at the village level. In 2016, we see that the highest level of coverage uh, has been around less than 65% for several key nutrition interventions. And the dashboard on the left side is uh, an illustration of high variability between states, uh, the coverage uh, for states uh, across life stage and the intervention type. The columns represent different interventions organized by the life stage and the rows represent states. Uh, red color is low coverage and uh, blue indicates high coverage. And we can see that this intervention, uh, the, the interventions are highly variable. Given this variability and knowing that how important these interventions are, uh, we have to keep a watch that they are, don't slide back in COVID times. Uh, next slide, please. Next slide, please. What we find is to ensure the scaling up uh, delivery at scale, vision, enabling, and policy environment, and catalysts and champions. These three are key three ingredients that have to come together which will facilitate scale-up of interventions. As an illustration, uh, on your right, uh, there is a, a graph that shows remarkable change in coverage between 2006 and 2016. This uh, was in Odessa, where there was a vision for change at the highest level of leadership uh, for improving 
coverage of interventions. There was a uh, policy environment was uh, enabling given the leadership's role in ensuring that the bureaucratic capabilities are fully utilized. There was enough financial uh, scope to implement and flexibility ensured to uh, innovate. In addition, there were uh, uh, development partners and champions within the st uh, state government as well as uh, uh, civil society members who all played a catalytic role to facilitate implementation. So the state, the, there are similar stories that exist in a few other states. It is plausible that states that are already prepared in this manner are able to uh, deal with current uh, fluidity in the COVID situation where changes are being quite dynamic compared to those states that are not there yet. But what this also says is the, the three, these three elements, vision, environment, and catalyst, are critical and we need to keep an eye on them. Next slide, please. Coming to the COVID uh, times in India, India has taken a lockdown approach and uh, this meant that services were closed down. But what we have seen so far is that policy environment has been quite dynamic. It has been changing in a gap of two to four weeks. In March, when the social distancing measures were announced, school closures were announced, and at the same time, states uh, announced closure of the village level centers through which the, the health and nutrition interventions are implemented. In April, the ministries have come out to issue guidance on essential nutrition services which is really heartening to see because in the dynamic changing overarching covid environment the there is uh, uh, there is there is policy guidance that is coming out on uh, implementation of these services uh, there has been changing of guidance in terms of prevalence or rates and how in which areas immunization services can be reopened they can be uh, where they can be uh, implemented so there has been a lot of guidance around it. As, as recently as last week, there has been a renewed guidance on to be focused, the focus be given on the um, uh, these essential nutrition services. Next slide, please. And given the social distancing and given all the changes that are coming through the policy environment, how are the programs adapting? On the left side, uh, we see the, the, the two services. The top one is the antenatal care and the bottom is the immunization service. These are uh, originally center-based services at the community level. They have been moved to facility-based services. Uh, one of the things that happens to because of this is we are losing opportunity for uh, the beneficiaries to access the services at the village level. It, it is plausible that beneficiaries are not able to find transport to come and receive the services. And this, this also provides an interaction space for, especially during antenatal care, uh, IFA, iron and folic acid supplements are provided during antenatal care services. If antenatal care is not accessed, then the complementary service of IFA is going to dip. And uh, the, this is also the time where health and nutrition counseling happens, which means we are losing out on that as well. On the right side, the food supplementation uh, service, which also happens uh, typically through delivery at the center, has moved to now door-to-door -door delivery. Frontline workers are delivering this service uh, going to beneficiary houses. 
and growth monitoring has been suspended. Again, these two are really critical services where um, behavior change counseling happens and we'll lose out on those services as well. Furthermore, growth monitoring ensures referral services where if the child is found to be malnourished, then the child gets referred further. So with the suspension of these uh, service, we are uh, in danger of missing out children who are malnourished. In addition to changes to services, frontline workers who are delivering these services also have taken on additional COVID-related duties, where they are doing door-to-door -door, uh, surveys, um, finding out COVID uh, if, uh, when, if the um, community has COVID prevalence. And this is adding on to their personal risk as well as workload, which could affect their current uh, service delivery. However, uh, what is really heartening is anecdotally, what we are hearing from the ground is that uh, frontline workers are constantly adapting, uh, particularly where mobile technology is available in some, some states, they are using them to be in touch with the beneficiaries. Counseling is happening through uh, mobile phones. Uh, they are also uh, keeping in touch with their supervisors through uh, over phones, WhatsApp groups, uh, which are highly uh, communication-based tools in India particularly, they are being used to reach out to the beneficiaries. Uh, beneficiaries are also reaching out back to um, uh, frontline workers with their questions. And what we are also hearing is fathers are also now getting involved in these uh, counseling uh, activities. They, these are all, however, uh, anecdotes we really do not know systematically what is actually happening on the ground. Uh, how are the frontline workers facing any challenges? What is their motivation to be continuing to, to do the services? Uh, so there is a learning agenda that uh, is imminent at this point. Next slide, please. So it, it is uh, important that we identify how frontline workers are making any adaptations on the ground, analyze these adaptations to identify feasible solutions uh, that can strengthen the delivery and uptake of essential services. And in the interim, continue to map policy responses to COVID-19 to study its implications for uh, coverage and outcomes. And in the long run, it would be helpful to examine pathways to success in maintaining coverage of interventions at subnational and substate level. And policies should continue to focus, as they are doing right now, to ensure that overall COVID-19 uh, response is inclusive of essential and nutrition services, and identify opportunities to reinstate routine monitoring systems, which have been installed right now, and bridge human resource supplies and capabilities gap, which are critical in continuing services. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Rasmin. That was a, a great reminder of what things were like pre-COVID, uh, how dynamic some of the changes have been. Um, I, I take away definitely some positive notes as well as some uh, causes for concern in, in what you uh, laid out, but definitely a um, uh, range of things to be, uh, to feel positive about, to see the ways in which policy environments are adapting quickly and frontline workers themselves are also adapting quickly. I think the outcomes of that we will have to wait uh, wait on. Um, let me now introduce our last speaker. Um, we'll move back to discussing uh, food systems now. So uh, Corinna Hawks, who, who's uh, joined us, 
will speak about um, what are the kinds of things we should be concerned about in terms of food systems changes. Uh, and I know, Karuna, you will, uh, given your work, also reflect on all forms of malnutrition, not just uh, undernutrition. So over to you. Sure, thanks. Uh, thanks very much. And thanks very much for the invitation to contribute today. And good, uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening to, to everyone who's joined. Uh, so when it comes to, to food systems and, and the coronavirus, uh, clearly the main link with, with nutrition is, is our diets, what people are eating. And of course, what we want the food system to do is to encourage, enable all people to, to eat healthy diets, um, that there is sufficient energy in those diets, that they're diverse, so they provide all nutrient needs, and that they're balanced, so they're not excessive in the foods um, that should be consumed in moderation, such as snacks and drinks, which are high in, in sugar, salt, and, and, and fat. And critical to point out, of course, that this high quality diet um, uh, bring benefits to all forms of malnutrition, whether it's underweight or overweight or micronutrient deficiencies um, or diet-related non-communicable diseases. So um, if I could move on to the next slide. Um, there are some indicators that Marie showed earlier that there is a there is being a diet is being impacted by um, COVID-19, but we don't know what that impact is in any kind of precise terms at all. But when we look at the food, uh, food systems impacts, it appears from the evidence available that so far the effects have mainly been on the foods that bring benefits, nutritional benefits, nutritious foods, uh, the foods that these two sets of uh, national dietary guidelines indicate we, we need to be eating plenty of, the fruits, the vegetables, the fish, uh, the milk, uh, eggs, uh, beans and, and legumes and so on. So this of course is, is cause for concern. And moving on to the next slide, if we ask ourselves, okay, so what elements of food systems have actually changed? There have been numerous illustrated examples from different settings about the impacts on supply chains and consumer demand, the, the food chain uh, depicted in the center of this figure. But as we just heard in the case of, of health systems in, in India, there's very little systematically conducted evidence gathering um, for obvious reason. It's relatively recent and the situation is very fluid. But what has been very clear is that every dimension of the food system has been affected by the health shock induced by the coronavirus. And this has affected all aspects of the food system, the food chain uh, in the middle and consumers, the, but the economic aspects in particular, but also the political, social and environmental aspects of the food system. So given that the food system is all about the ripple effects that, that happens within it, the concern is that this huge health shock uh, from corona will have those ripple effects throughout the system and that will then return to have a second health shock which will be um, by influencing people's diets and nutrition in a negative way. Now that's clearly going to happen over the short term but we also need to consider about what the implications are over the long term. So to do that we need to place this issue in a food systems framework so I'd like to just go to a little bit more detail next on the next slide to show the pathways through which the coronavirus could affect, could be affecting diets through, the, through food systems. And the first impact, the first source of impact 
is, is directly from uh, COVID-19 uh, that people are sick. Uh, so we've probably heard stories from the United States about the 10,000 or so workers in meat plants who can no longer work there, which is affecting the supply of, of, of meat. But actually the far most important impact to date, and this is clearly the case with health systems um, even more so, is the, um, um, is, is the lockdown, are the policies that have been put into place to mitigate um, the virus. And these, of course, are changing all the time. And so it's a very, very fluid situation that's hard to track. And thirdly, the way that the food system will end up being impacted would, of course, also depend on what responses governments put into place, the responses that business and industry, large and small, put into place, and the programs that are delivered to manage those food systems impacts, the, the, the responses that are designed to keep the food systems going, despite the impacts directly from health and the indirect impacts of the of, of the lockdown so collectively all of these three sources of impact have the potential to influence diets by changing food systems um, by changing the food environments that surround people in other words the foods that are available to people their nutrient quality and their prices so in the next slide i wanted to drill down even further to try and unpack even more closely what the specific pathways might be from the coronavirus through food systems on nutritious diets, specifically on nutritious foods, and which matter most for the population group at most risk, people, people who are poor and people who are marginalized in, in different ways. And I've put these pathways together from the information, the illustrated examples uh, that are out there, which show that the impacts are highly, highly variable and context specific. But there are some commonalities that emerge. And the second way that these pathways um, are, are critically important is because each of them have the potential to have ripple effects throughout the whole food chain. And that means that the impact of those effects will be amplified and have feedback effects, which then come back and go down into a, into a vicious and negative cycle, or can do if not stopped. And the first of those critical pathways, I'm actually going to go to what I've labeled number two here first, which are the impact of those lockdown policies on the places where people in poverty acquire nutritious foods. So the lockdown has had disproportionate impact on markets which are used by people in poverty, by the informal vendors which serve these groups, by the early childhood development centers and schools where children obtain meals. Uh, so the very places where people in poverty acquire nutritious foods are the places in the food system, in the retail food service part of the, of the food system which are being most effective. So we hear stories from Kenya about all fresh produce markets having to close, meaning that the supply of highly nutritious leafy greens is cut off. It means that in South Africa, uh, where 50% of groceries are bought from the informal sector, the informal sector have been disproportionately effective and had to close down while supermarkets have managed to stay open. And this latter example uh, highlights just how important urban uh, the urban poor and, and the particular risks faced by the urban poor. And of course, Marie mentioned earlier about the school closures um, affecting, uh, uh, affecting children. 
So this pathway is incredibly important because it affects people living in poverty very, very directly by shutting down where they buy nutritious foods and affecting availability. But it's also important because when we look in the context of the whole food chain, this impact reverberates right back into the food supply and cuts the demand for the supply of nutritious foods. So reports from Rwanda, for example, that small businesses selling iron-rich beans are losing their valuable markets for schools. So unless they find new markets for their products, that's going to affect the income of that small business. And that could have long-term impacts on the viability of that business, which then has long-term implications for the supply of nutritious foods. In Bangladesh, it's been reported that the shops that sell milk products have had to close, which means that thousands of tons of milk um, are no longer being sold every day. And that's affecting um, thousands and thousands of dairy farmers. But when these dairy farmers try and find new markets for their products, because demand is overall low, the prices have dropped. So it's hardly worth selling um, them selling that milk at all. So the concern here is that the feedback of the lockdown at the retail level will disincentivize businesses, small businesses will disincentivize production of the nutritious foods. It means that farmers won't plant, won't feed their animals and so on, which has these longer term impacts, which could extend way beyond um, the, um, uh, the, the, the actual pandemic. So um, the, the, next, um, the next pathway, also affects producers, which is labor. Um, labor um, farmers are reporting um, from many places that uh, they're not able to get the labor that they need. Um, and the, the labor is a particularly important pathway uh, for other reasons. It, it affects not just the farm part of the system, but it affects the entire system. So there's been reports from Peru and other Latin American countries where um, markets fresh produce markets are still open but the workers are falling sick and getting infected and this is an indicator of the many different ways that labor is in the supply chain is being affected there's a loss of labor the world health there's less labor mobility which means uh, there's less flexibility about about getting labor onto farms uh, and so on and there's a social distancing and stay at home requirements which affects uh, particularly uh, small businesses uh, and businesses all the way through uh, the supply chain. The third pathway, uh, a particular importance um, to, I should add actually on, on the labor side, uh, that it's particularly relevant to nutritious foods because from a production point, because obviously nutritious foods are often more labor intensive and need more labor. The third way is, um, is limits to transportation, which also affects storage, of course, as well. And we know that lockdowns have had a really important impact on distribution and transport, as well as trade across regional trade in, in, in particular. And uh, these are particularly important for nutritious foods because they're often more perishable and therefore need rapid transport. So holdups uh, lead to a tremendous amount of, of food loss um, in, in the system. And uh, the reports from Pakistan, for example, that the main problem in the whole food chain is actually the transportation of 
uh, fruits and vegetables from the farm into the urban settings to get to urban markets because it's so difficult to do it. And in other countries such as Malawi where the markets are still uh, possible to open, we hear reports about transport costs going sky high, which for a small marginalized vegetable seller makes a big difference there's reduced passenger capacity and therefore the remaining capacity is more expensive for the vendors that are going into that market. And in Nepal, it's been reported that transporting to traditional markets is so difficult these days that the crops are rotting in the fields, which is why a whole part of that food chain in the diagram there is food loss. All of this has tremendous implications for the loss of nutritious perishable foods all the way through the food chain. And the final um, critical pathway um, emerges, is the first one that I've labelled here, emerges directly from the people who eat. And of course, I've used the term eaters there um, because the people who eat are also those who work in the food system, the farmers, the business owners, which we know in millions and millions of, of, of people. And if their income declines through the loss of demand and all the other problems that they face that I've uh, outlined, they will then be able to acquire less nutritious foods for themselves and of course the concern that when people have less money they will switch only over to the uh, staples and the foods which are seen as less core to the diet the nutritious foods um, will um, will be consumed less of and then of course it's not just about the actors in the food system who will lose money but more broadly the results of the economic slowdown that Marie indicated and talked about earlier um, will affect everybody um, who eats and um, the foods that they are able to afford. And this will have even more impact on a demand-led change, which has ripple effects all the way back to supply and introduces the issues um, I've, already, um, I've already mentioned. Uh, and that in turn will lead to an increased reliance on, on social, uh, on social uh, protection. And it's when you put all of these pathways together that we can see how serious um, this, this could be. For example, uh, um, uh, uh, an example which uh, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition shared recently, it was from Rwanda, which said there's been a decline in demand for fish because people have less money to buy it and so are switching away from it. And then um, for the fish, so that's bad for the fish producers. Then the fish producers have to cope with lockdown measures, which is preventing the import of fish food to small scale fisheries. That means they're having to feed their fish different food, which is reducing the quality of the fish, which then dulls demand for the fish even more and reduces the price of it in the market because people don't want it, which then further reduces um, the incentive to produce and therefore threatens the maintenance of small-scale fisheries and the businesses that serve them, which are needed to, for the long-term improvement of dietary quality and needed for the shift um, uh, towards, um, towards better diets over the long term. In my last couple of minutes, um, having outlined uh, the main uh, um, aspects of the pathways, I'd like to touch on um, a couple of further points. And the first on the next slide, is around junk food. Uh, we know that some people, uh, that people will naturally uh, sometimes shift to junk foods, foods with little nutritional value, but which may have a lot of energy and salt and, and fat and sugar in them um, when they're very easily available. 
uh, and we just don't know what's happening with with that situation. But I wanted to flag this uh, quotation from the Coca-Cola Africa website, which says we have activating the well-established incident management crisis response protocol across all markets. So Coca-Cola, which is not a nutritious food, um, has a management system already in place to deal with this situation. I'm not sure that the suppliers of nutritious foods have a similar type of crisis management. In fact, I think from what I've just showed, they don't. Um, but we also know, on the other hand, uh, we also know that uh, companies like Coca-Cola, many companies are undertaking increased marketing and advertising, a lot of cause related marketing, which are associated with charitable efforts that they're putting into place um, during uh, the coronavirus. So it's possible that the intake of these foods will increase. But it's also possible that the intake of the sugary, salty uh, snacks and, and others will actually decline because the informal vendors that often sell these are subject to lockdown. Um, if people are more reliant on, um, um, on feeding schemes, um, they may be exposed to less of these foods. And in fact, global volume of Coca-Cola is, by it happens, um, down 25% in the last month, but other companies have seen an increase. So what do we do? Um, what's really um, a, a really nice and positive thing that we see in the next slide is the responses to manage the food system's impacts. And what we're seeing is some really exciting innovations. And I've included the innovations in social protection, which Maria alluded to earlier, because social protection is a vital part of the food system um, because it, 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 has, it increases demand for, um, for nutritious foods. But what we're not seeing yet is how those social protection mechanisms, are they actually taking into account diet quality? I'm not sure we're seeing those innovations yet. When it comes to the all important access part of the food supply chain, we're seeing some really important innovations at the community level where governments and businesses just haven't been able to step in fast enough and particularly in urban settings such as the examples here and at the producer level we're seeing some incredible innovations we're trying to set up direct markets um, to consumers whether it's the collection centers and ambulances in Nepal whether it's the value addition and digital markets that are happening in Malawi, the call centers in Bangladesh, or policy innovations uh, which are taking place in order to create greater uh, um, flexibility in India for farmers to get the nutritious foods to market. So my final slide is the implications for policy responses um, to enhance healthy diets over the, the longer term. The first crucial point is to start with people where poor, poor diets are. This is not a question of going to farmers and saying, produce more nutritious foods. Start with the people where the problem is. That could be urban settlements. It could be the producers themselves. Um, and prioritize in policy responses where they are acquiring nutritious foods. And if these places are closed in the short term, make sure there are alternatives and make sure that over the longer term, these places are prioritized for not just returning to what they were before, but improving them to make sure that they're providing nutritious foods. In so doing, making sure you're getting the whole food supply chain working, demand and all of those aspects of the chain, not just one part of it, and making sure that that is targeted at delivering the people that need it most. That's gonna need municipal efforts, national efforts and international efforts. And to build on those existing innovations, 
to get the incentives aligned for production, distribution and consumption and make sure that they're focused on the nutritious foods. And as you are doing that, take a double duty approach to make sure that as you're doing that, the junk foods aren't flooding into the market at the same time and that they are um, limited in order to allow the nutritious foods to flourish. I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Corinna. What a powerful uh, presentation. And I, again, I, I really value that you also ended with some, uh, some things on a positive note, you know, to help us see again how fast some of the systems are adapting. Uh, again, I, you know, I, I think a lot remains to be seen about what the impacts of all of these uh, rapid adaptations and innovations are, are likely to be. Uh, so our last um, uh, closing comment, comments will be from uh, John McDermott. Um, I just want to remind everyone who's online, please do keep your questions coming in. I'm already seeing some really interesting questions uh, that we will have a chance to ask our panelists. But before that, uh, John McDermott. John. Uh, thank you. Um, so I love the title of this presentation, No Backsliding. It's a great ambition, but I think as we've already heard from Marie and Bob, uh, it's inevitable that there will be some backsliding. Um, and if you think over the past 10 or more years, there's been a real concerted effort to improve nutrition globally, all forms of malnutrition. And there's been a lot of hard work that's gone into it in ordinary times. Unfortunately, we're in extraordinary times, and so there is a problem. But I think it's important that we keep our eye both on the present and the future, and to make sure that we start to sow the seeds of diet and nutrition recovery during the, the, uh, the disruption response, that this is gonna be quite critical. So we have to, to focus on the present, but keep our eye on the future is gonna be very important. Now, if COVID has demonstrated anything, it has demonstrated that single sectoral responses don't work and that we're gonna have a problem if we don't align our kind of health actions with our economic actions and actions in food and other systems. Um, now, nutritionists get this and they've understood for a long time that nutrition gains are multi-sectoral and they're gonna require health food, social protection, and other things that you've heard about. And that's all great. Um, and there's been a lot of movement now on the kind of food systems and how that's a good way of looking at things that we've heard from Corinna. Those are still largely though more conceptual than they are operationalized. And we need to fast track a bit how those get operationalized so that we can make some of these big changes on the food system side and particularly around coordinating different types of food system actors that, that I don't see much of yet. Um, on the program side, which we heard a lot from RASME, um, we've got to remember that in the, in the recovery phase, a lot of the governments that have been leading the charge on nutrition improvements and diet improvements are gonna have very limited fiscal space. And so it's gonna be really important that we align our actions and work together. And I know that's challenging, but it's really critical. And finally, I guess multi-sectoral actions are, are easiest at the local levels. Um, and I was really cheered to hear Razmi talk about the kind of adaptations and learning that local staff were making. And we really need their perspectives to understand better 
how these multi-sectoral actions can work. Um, so this is going to be, I think, a crucial thing. How do we how do we get down to the local levels and empower those people to do things? So so let me stop there for a minute. Great, thank thank you so much, John. Um, I, I thought it was very powerful how you brought together the idea that all of these systems disruptions are going to have ripple effects that in the end uh, become very local and um, can can either play out in very bad ways for people who are the most vulnerable or uh, we can we can act to kind of preserve the um, uh, and maybe even make better things that are happening now. So um, let us move on now to our uh, Q&A session. We have some really interesting questions that have come, come to us from around the world, really. Um, so let me first kick off with um, a question for, um, a couple of questions for Bob Black. Uh, Bob, there are two questions that I, I think would be particularly useful for you to address. So the first question is, um, are the indirect effects and the increased mortality that you spoke about uh, also applicable to mothers due to the same reasons? So what are the impacts on maternal mortality? And that's a question from Ahmed Kavlan, who's at uh, the USAID Center for Nutrition in, in Washington, D.C. Um, in, in addition, uh, Karen Callens from FAO asks about you know, the actual impact of nutrition, both undernutrition and obesity on the severity of health impacts and mortality due to COVID. So I think those are both questions related to the intersections of mortality and um, uh, malnutrition and, and mortality in the context of COVID. So if you could speak to those. Sure. Uh, first on uh, maternal uh, conditions and, and, and particularly maternal mortality, the paper that I mentioned in Lancet Global Health did include effects on maternal mortality. Just for the sake of time, I didn't discuss that today. But in fact, um, all the same conditions, in fact, uh, some even more severely so, are affecting women um, in pregnancy and, uh, and after. Uh, for example, not being able to deliver in facilities, uh, as, as we heard in, um, in India. And so, um, th yes, there are absolutely uh, potential effects on, on maternal mortality or, or maternal health in, in general. Um, in, in regard to um, the, the relationship between the, in, the nutritional conditions, nutritional status, and the infection itself, I think was the question. Um, we, we certainly know that, um, that children who are undernourished are at high risk of uh, an elevated risk of, uh, of uh, serious disease and mortality from many, many other infections. Uh, certainly uh, all the common childhood infections and the, the, the attribution of mortality to undernutrition, you know, as, as exemplified by wasting or stunting or even micronutrient deficiencies, is, is in fact this largely the interaction of the nutritional condition and, and the infectious disease, so the additional risk. So does that occur with coronavirus? The answer is we don't know. Um, I think with, with this um, COVID-19 disease, what is quite striking is that so far, there are very few reports of serious disease or death in children or even uh, adolescents. So uh, if you look at the statistics that I've seen most recently, uh, for, uh, for those who are infected and under 20, the case fatality rate is virtually zero. 
Um, so it is, it is quite strikingly different than the relationship with other infectious diseases. Um, I know I, I, I would have to speculate to say why that might be, but I, I will say that the, the relationship, the, the historical one, is, is often thought to be the immune compromise so that children who are undernourished have a reduced immune function. It's actually very striking with this uh, COVID-19 that many of the deaths in adults are related to excessive immune function, dysregulation of the immune system, and what is called the, the uh, cytokine storm or the toxic shock kind of condition. And so it may be that children are not having that generally, although now in, in uh, Europe and the, and the US, there are reports of this uh, multi-organ infectious syndrome in children. It is that it is that uh, you know excessive immune response. So it does occur in children, uh, although it seems to be largely treated in those children. So it is it is a different situation than the typical one with undernutrition making children more susceptible to infection. In this case, they seem to be uh, spared. Children seem to be spared. And we, but we don't have, the, the answer also is, we don't have yet the data from settings where malnutrition is much more severe because the data so far come from South Korea, uh, Europe, and, uh, and, and China, primarily in some of the US. Great, uh, thank you, Bob. Very thoughtful response to that. I, I, I guess we need a lot more uh, nutrition data to be collected in clinical settings as these unfolds in urban middle-income countries. Um, so I have uh, now a question for uh, Marie. Uh, the question is from Eric Boy at Harvest Plus. Uh, so Marie, in the uh, 60 plus low and middle income countries where biofortified crops are available, uh, what are your thoughts on now recommending these varieties both for homestead uh, programs and community-based school feeding? What is the, um, does the evidence support? Um, I have not seen anything in terms of efforts to uh, promote or make those crops available and, and provide the inputs or anything like that. So, uh, and, and probably Eric, you would be <laughs> closer to that information. So, uh, but of course, by all means, it, uh, it, it's a perfect type of intervention if you want to really address uh, critical micronutrients through agriculture and, and people have the land and, and the ability to, to grow. Uh, this is really uh, a, very, a very good intervention, but what would be the way to try to scale that up quickly or at least to distribute the vines for, for orange, for sweet potatoes, for example, and, and other things. So what, um, what would be the distribution channels and, and, uh, and, and who can you partner with to make that happen is, is still a big question. Great, uh, thank you. Really um, big questions. It, it almost feels like if it was there to begin with, it could perhaps move, uh, move fast, but if it wasn't there to begin with the programs, it's going to be much harder to get it in. Um, so I have a, another a question now that maybe I will direct to um, to Rasmi and to Corinna because you may be hearing about some of these in your in your context. Um, many countries we didn't really speak about school feeding programs, but um, one of our our viewers is saying you know many countries have free meals for children schools, and I'm going to add preschools uh, to that as well. 
uh, given the closures of some of these, what is it that governments can do to ensure that children get, get basic nutrition? Uh, so if, you, if both maybe you and Corinna could address that uh, from your experiences, um, I will go through the question back on the next round. I can go ahead. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. Right. Uh, I can speak from the experience in India in terms of uh, midday meals, which is one of the largest programs in the world. And what we have, we are hearing here is that uh, because of school closures, whatever the food uh, was being given has been converted into dry rations. The actual ingredients that go into the meals, they are being either home delivered or uh, they are being delivered through public distribution system. So there are those kind of um, interventions are in place currently. The challenges with that is that uh, we don't know when it goes into a home, whether it's the child that is actually e being is eating that meal or if it's, it's going into the family pot, especially in the current uh, food insecure uh, situations. Uh, from what I hear, hearing in the global situation also, even in the US, I heard that it's only about 15% of children have thus far received any school meals that are being implemented. So there, there is data. In India, we don't have data. Uh, the guidance is there. We don't know what's actually happening on the ground. Over. Thanks. Corinna, uh, any comments on that? Yeah, well, in a, a project that I'm working on in, in uh, South Africa, in, in Cape Town, in some um, informal um, settlements and townships, what's, what's happened there uh, is that um, the initial effort uh, when the schools and the early childhood development centers, which are very important in those communities, uh, closed down, uh, is that there was an immediate effort um, for uh, vouchers uh, to be provided as well as, um, as food parcels. But uh, clearly, there are always going to be distribution issues, uh, complexities, bureaucracy around these um, uh, these uh, issues. And even though that they they provided some uh, short-term relief, um, over the longer term, um, they've proved more uh, they'll prove more difficult. And which is why uh, the self-organising around community community kitchens and communal uh, ways of eating. Um, have emerged um, because they are more based in the communities. They're more, um, they, they can serve uh, the children in different ways. So they're not children specific, um, but they, that they have been uh, brought into, into place and innovated um, by NGOs. And that's the response that's been seen. In the UK, a system of food vouchers was introduced. And in some places it's working fine. In other places, it, it's so complicated, people don't understand the system. So schools are taking it on board um, to deliver food parcels themselves. So in, in two extremely different settings, uh, we're seeing different types of efforts and innovations come out mm -hmm. as people scramble around to try and find a solution. Yeah, yeah, no, really, uh, it is truly fantastic to see, uh, you know, how, uh, in, in a sense, the, the panic, but it is, is also creating um, uh, so much innovation on, on the ground. And I, I wonder whether we as researchers uh, will even have an opportunity to understand how all this unfolds, given some of the challenges to even doing. Uh, doing research. Uh, so Marie, one, one question that has come up for you is, you know, is in your role where you uh, direct a large uh, group of researchers, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing to 
uh, the work that researchers themselves uh, would otherwise be doing to, to study these innovations and adaptations. Comment on that. Um, yeah, this is a, a great question. Um, we do have uh, currently probably only the phone survey kind of approach. Uh, well, there's there's a modeling work that Jeffrey does, of course, that that is uh, uh, at full speed because it doesn't require interacting with human subjects and going to the field. But from the, uh, from the type of surveys and impact evaluations that we do, it has become really difficult because we have to rely on, on the phone surveys. Um, our early experience with them is, first of all, lots of people don't answer the phone. Uh, we have uh, samples that are uh, therefore not necessarily representative. Even if we had the phone numbers from a previous study, when we try to call them back, they don't necessarily uh, respond. And so the sample is biased. And, and then we can only uh, keep a person for about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, and uh, our surveys often, when we do it in person, last up to two hours and, and people are happy to talk to us. And uh, whereas on the phone, it's, it's a very different thing. We may not be hitting the person we want to hit. Maybe the person who answers the phone is not necessarily the woman in the household that we'd like to talk to. And so there are real issues about the quality and, and the depth of the data that we can collect, collect that way. And um, I think the early information we got that I, that I was presenting is showing that it's rather superficial what, what information we can collect. And I, I do not see the light in terms of when we will be able to go back to the field and, and carry out the research the way we are used to. And even the, um, uh, the kind of methods we have developed that are based on, on, uh, on cell phones or, or uh, other way, simple ways, for example, to collect, to collect dietary information, it still requires a lot of attention and concentration from the part of the participant, which we are not at all certain we can get. So um, I am concerned about that, that we will have a lot of anecdotal and more qualitative kind of information about what's going on than the quantitative information that is so cru crucial for uh, designing programs and, uh, and interventions. So we still have to think more about how to change a little bit the way we do things and still can collect data that is meaningful and, and quantitative for the needs that we have. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Really, really big challenges there, I, I think, for the the researchers who could otherwise uh, help to tell some of these stories. Um, I'm going to um, pose a question now to, to Bob and to, to Rasmi. Um, it is really on this theme of backsliding. So Bob, you've been at the forefront of sort of creating the, the energy and the momentum nutrition agenda uh, globally. And you know, I, I guess the question uh, to you is, um, do you think that the, the pre-COVID energy that was created is going to help us sort of carry through the nutrition agenda. Uh, similarly for, um, you know, the, the entire RMNCH agenda as well, which, which can be in pushing. And a similar question to, to Rasmi, uh, which is that, you know, India carries a large burden of malnutrition. Uh, there has been a lot of progress on the nutrition agenda and the momentum. Uh, for nutrition in recent years. So how concerned are you about 
on nutrition backsliding. So if the two of you could just address this issue of, you know, will the energy carry us through? Uh, so first Bob and then Rasmi and then John and Corinna have a really interesting question coming for you right after this. Hold tight. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think in, in recent years, there has been a, first a very strong consensus on, on the importance of, of dealing with nutritional issues and, and in all its forms, malnutrition in all its forms, but um, strong um, consensus on what interventions are important, how to uh, operate nutrition specific programs, I'm speaking of. And, um, and I think all of those um, uh, agreements and, and the consensus of what needs to be done is still there. And I think the, the you know, the pandemic and the response to it uh, will change some of the aspects in the short term. I think we might have to, you know, have more uh, response to wasting than, uh, you know, of course, we probably needed more in the first place before COVID, but, but even in, in the even more perhaps in the short term but but I think you know the the issues of dealing with uh, micronutrient deficiencies and dietary diversity and uh, you know food quality and and ultimately you know reducing stunting all of those issues are, are are still critical and I think the momentum that that was has been building uh, you know should still be there I think in some ways we ought to figure out how to utilize this as a as a learning moment one of my supervisors at cdc said don't you know don't, don't a, a, a an epidemic is a public health opportunity and, and in a way we could think of you know nutrition is going to be severely affected and and how do we make the argument not only in the short term but in the long term that the, the you know these are these are important interventions and programs and that we need, you know, the resources and the expansion of services to go forward, you know, not only in the acute phase, but in the recovery and beyond that to, to you know, expand even further. Thank you, Bob. Rasmi? Similar to what Bob said, and globally how nutrition community and everybody has come together rallying around the nutrition interventions, even within India, uh, there has been a strong consensus on what is needed and what is important. Uh, in 2018, uh, the, uh, under the National Nutrition Mission, the health and nutrition interventions got renewed focus and the delivery has become, the, uh, the delivery of these interventions and their coverage has become uh, re regained really uh, high focus. So with that vision and the pre-COVID India coming together of everyone, I think we have scope for keeping the issue on the agenda. Plus what we are seeing even in this dynamic policy movement uh, currently, there, there is, uh, uh, the, they are keeping an eye on delivering these interventions. They are giving guidance. The, when I say they, the national level, there is national level guidance and states are adapting to implement it. What, is, what we have to see in the long run is given all the implications of financial burdens, food insecurity, uh, and the other income losses, uh, whether the beneficiaries will be able to uh, take on the behavior change communication that uh, the frontline workers are delivering and able to take up and implement, them, especially around infant and young child feeding practices. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, but that, having said that, I think uh, the onus is on uh, the nutrition community to keep our eyes on the agenda and keep uh, keep at it to continue to move as the COVID situation unfolds. Over. We should uh, end soon, but there's a really important question that I think if uh, Corinna and John could, could address quickly uh, would be very powerful. So the question is um, from Anita Beek at, in Wageningen, and it's, uh, it's a question on the role of the private sector. So how do you see the role of the private sector, especially partnerships uh, or actions by national or multinational companies in the context of supplementation of fortification to fill nutrient gaps? Um, and what opportunities and risks do you, do you see to work together? Now that's the topic of an entire webinar, but I'm, I'm literally gonna ask you to take 30 seconds and just tell us, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, how worried are you about that? John and Corinna. Uh, well, if I, if I can start, I mean, the food system is largely made up of the private sector. So, um, and, and policy plays a role by influencing the incentives um, that the private sector then uh, respond to. Uh, for the most part, obviously there's important public sector food delivery too, but um, for the most part it's the private sector. Uh, this is a, a, a large topic, so I'll just make two quick points. And the first is, is the importance of focusing on repeating what I said earlier, focusing on the businesses that actually supply nutritious foods to people uh, living in, in more marginal circumstances. So that isn't necessarily the big businesses, it could be um, the informal uh, vendors, they're part of the private sector, the small and medium sized enterprises are part of the private sector. And then you've got uh, big businesses coming in and processing in different ways. So all size of business uh, makes a difference. But there are very different types of businesses and the key thing is to stay focused on the ones that are serving um, that population and and the second part is to see that it, it's an important partnership partnerships perhaps not the right word but it is a relationship between policies community level action and private sector action and it's up for the public sector to set to provide the framework in which the private sector operates and it's up to the private sector to deliver it so the public sector is not going to set effective policy unless it takes and understands the incentives and uh, the way that the private sector operates so there needs to be um, uh, coordination there but it is up to the public sector to essentially set that policy uh, policy framework for the private sector in all its forms to Thank you. Uh, John, a very, very quick response, please, so that I can, we can then move into closing. Okay, thanks, Purnima. Um, one of the things we have to remember is that most of the businesses in the food system in low and middle income countries are small and medium sized enterprises. And so they need help. Uh, they need associations, they need people to help navigate this space. Um, and so I think thinking about how we support small and medium-sized enterprises and relax the regulations a bit, let them have longer hours, let them disperse their selling, all kinds of things that would make sense. Multinational companies have a lot of know-how that they could help small and medium-sized enterprises, but they're not too huge a part of the, of the food system in low and middle-income countries yet, but they have a lot of capacity to help. Great, thank you. Well, it has been really wonderful to have you all here with us today. So a huge thank you to all our brilliant panelists. Uh, I'm going to ask each of you in reverse order now, first Corinna, and then Rasmi, then Bob and Marie, to offer just 20 seconds of your key takeaways. Corinna, 20 seconds. <laughs> uh, take a food systems approach. 
and focus on the people um, who most need uh, more nutritious foods and the markets that serve them and think about the long term as well as the short term and all forms of malnutrition, a holistic approach in other words. Thank you. Lives of women and children in the first thousand days cannot be put on hold as they are going through critical development phases. So we cannot afford to backslide on the health and nutrition uh, interventions delivered. Bob? Sure. Um, well, you know, I think we're clearly in the, the first phase of what is likely to be a long-term pandemic. And I, I think we have been focusing on the lockdown, the, the, uh, the very acute aspects. But I think we need to think ahead. And, and I do believe, unfortunately, that this is going to be with us for quite a long time, spreading around the world and, uh, and affecting uh, families and, and uh, people who are ill, people who die, and, and affect uh, families long term and, uh, and the health of children that we're talking about. So I think the, the message, as, as Karina said, is think long term, not just the short term response, which we have to do, but what, how do we position nutrition and, and nutrition programs and, uh, and nutrition support to, to families for a very long haul? In, in response to the pandemic and, and what is needed even beyond the pandemic to, uh, to support uh, nutrition. Thanks. Thank you. Marie? I have a slide. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I take this opportunity to invite everyone to join the call to action for the global nutrition and food systems research community, come together, coming together, standing together for nutrition. So talking about momentum, uh, many of us on, on this panel are member have already signed up for this call to action and we'd like to invite everyone and the uh, website is noted there. Wonderful, thank you. And just a reminder to everyone that we will tweet out and share that, um, uh, that website where you can add your name to that call for action. So let me take this to a close by thanking all of you for joining us today online. A huge thank you to our brilliant panelists, Marie, Bob, Rasmi, Corinna, as well as you and, and John, you added so much. It's been an absolute privilege to have each of you here and I really hope that your perspectives and experiences inspire policymakers and funders to continue to pay attention to nutrition. Absolutely cannot afford backsliding on an issue that so many, in so many ways for entire lifetimes and maybe beyond. Um, we commit to learning about all the amazing things that people have already been doing out there. Um, and I want to just close by saying thank you. Thank you so much again for everyone who joined.